Like I mentioned that case with the Word and the Excel macro documents, we have all that information they grab, the internal IP address, the username, the, the host name, all that stuff we can get out over DNS. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Security Tools Podcast. Today, we are gonna talk about some really interesting stuff that allows you to track documents and even URLs to unmask attackers who have maybe gotten access to a sensitive area or access to sensitive information. My guest today is Adrian Sanbria, is that correct? Sanabria. Sanabria, sorry. Adrian Sanabria, joining us from Thinkus Canary. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Yeah, excited to be here. So I've talked to my friend Joel, who has made something that is into some of the same kinds of tokens that uh, Canary makes. But there are some important differences because not only do you guys make a straight up you know, URL-based uh, one that is links that go through to maybe some something that people are expecting to see, but you guys also make some additional ones like DNS tokens and some other ones that are less traditional, but allow them to be used in some really interesting and cool ways. Can you explain a little bit about what your company does and specifically specifically some of the projects that researchers can get their hands on that are free uh, community tools? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the basic idea is just to detect when suspicious stuff is going on. And we've got two products. Uh, one is our, our, our canaries, and then we have our canary tokens. And the canaries, uh, their purpose is to detect suspicious stuff going on on a network. You know, So they sit there, they look like um, a legitimate system. They look like anything from an IBM mainframe to a Windows uh, Server 2016, um, maybe a NAS device, maybe a printer. And, and just wait for somebody to come along, say, hey, that looks that looks interesting. That looks like it's got something I want on it. Uh, maybe a file share, something like that. And they, they try to grab it. And we send you an alert uh, when they start uh, touching it, messing with it, stuff like that. And then the tokens, the idea there is not all attacks touch your network. You know, if somebody steals your credentials, logs into your email account, we're not going to catch that with the canary because they're not on your network. They're hitting Office 365 or Gmail or something like that. So you need some other way to detect attacks that just hit the cloud or your, you know, Dropbox or something like that. And that's where the canary tokens come in. And these can be anything from a file to a bit of code that you can embed somewhere. And when an attacker, uh, you know, same thing, we're, we're kind of social engineering the attacker, kind of switching the roles here where we're tempting them to take a look at something, to open something, to to use some credentials. In the moment they do, they've fallen into a trap. And in most cases, they don't even know that they've fallen into a trap. But something they've done that you've tempted them to do has sent an alert, and, and you get that alert. So yeah, like a, like a burglar alarm for your network and for your systems. What I really like about this is it kind of gives people, even on a very small scale, because this project is, um, I don't know, is part of this open source or is it just free for researchers to use? Yeah, so for the Canary side, we have Open Canary. Uh, it's on GitHub. It's well documented. You can find it. Lots of people use it. And uh, much simpler version of the the commercial Canaries that we build and sell. Um, but yeah, so that's a that's an open source project. And then uh, parts of the tokens are open source, and we also just run a public server that's completely free. You don't even have to create an account. You can just go to canarytokens.org and create tokens to your heart's content. And last I checked, there's something like a hundred thousand plus people. Uh, that that use that service. So I really like that this gives people who might have something that 
maybe someone with a technological advantage, maybe someone who has access to the network, or in some cases when we talk about domestic abusers, someone who might have a shared account. This gives some people the ability to fight back against that and maybe be able to detect when their data is being accessed in a way it shouldn't be and at least be able to, for one, know that they've been breached and for two, maybe get an idea of who is breaching them based on the information that's gathered from the attacker that clicks on whatever that link is. And you brought up some really interesting examples of how people who are worried about their email being broken into or some other more personal stuff that isn't just about business can use this because it is, again, a free service that anyone can access. Yeah, and and the nice thing about it is you don't have to be overly technical to to get good use out of these tokens. Uh, you know, you do have to kind of come up with the use case here. You have to think about your attacker. You know, maybe what motivates them. You know, what what would they be interested in? You know, what should I name this this file so I can create a word document? You know, regardless of how technical you are, you could hit canarytokens.org create it, put a name on the file uh, that, that you think the attacker would be interested in, put it in a place that you think they might find it. You know, maybe you think somebody's got access to your computer, but you don't know for sure. Or you think somebody might have access to your email. Like if you're using Gmail or something like that, there may not be a good way to, to tell uh, if, if somebody else is using your credentials there. More and more, we're actually seeing some of these public services, these SaaS services will tell you, hey, uh, was this you that logged in from this new IP address and things like that. Uh, but there's still a lot that don't. And uh, and by, you know, scattering these files about, you, you have another way of finding that out. Well, I'm also thinking of some cases now where people are being forced to stay at home. And for a lot of, I know in particular, a young lady who is very kind of, uh, let's just say that her dad is very, very um, controlling. It looks over her shoulder, logs into her accounts, looks through her things, and then berates her for all sorts of stuff that she's, you know, not really doing wrong. People who are in situations like that really don't have control because they live in a shared space where they might not you know, be able to contribute enough financially to assert their rights to have real privacy. So sometimes knowing whether or not someone's gone through your stuff can be really difficult if someone actually has access to the physical device that you yourself are logging into. So if you're in a shared resource at home or someone's caching your passwords, if you're like a student and you have someone who's you know, logging into your stuff and you don't know about it, Something like that is also a, a case where someone who's in a domestic abuse sort of scenario where they might not have access to a secure device where someone might be able to look over their shoulders, um, at least they would be able to know about that. And if they're planning on you know, trying to go to the police or something like that, at least they would be able to show some evidence that that were happening, which I, I can say is pretty difficult to do if you're not a technical person and you're not sure if someone's actually accessing you know, your stuff or not. And this is pretty cut and dry. Like, you know, if you're seeing an IP address that isn't yours logging in, then, you know, unless you've recently, you know, logged in from another access point or, you know, if you're using a different VPN, it's a pretty definitive evidence that somebody is getting access to something that they shouldn't be getting access to. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in the domestic cases, it gets a little bit more difficult because you're going to be connected to the same Wi-Fi and the same network. Um, you're using a lot of the same resources. You know, there's still things that you can do, but but yeah, there, there's, I think, some different solutions for those kinds of situations. You know, maybe uh, yeah, I've seen apps where when you unlock the phone, it takes a photo of who's doing it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's just interesting that normal people can use this sort of thing to monitor, you know, maybe an ex who happens to remember your password, uh, logging into your account and going through your things, or just those sorts of things that, you know, everyday people 
don't really have a defense against. Uh, as you mentioned, you can look through the logins and see if there's any suspicious IP addresses. But if you're logging in from a different, a bunch of different things in your local city, and maybe that person lives in the same area, that might not necessarily trigger, you know, a login event. Like provided that it's from the same general geographic area, and maybe it's a, a place you've been to before, a coffee shop or something like that. You know, there's all sorts of scenarios where you just would really like to know if someone was in there going through your most sensitive stuff. So it makes sure it kind of makes sense that if there's a free tool out there that can just alert you every time that happens, it's definitely one of those things where it's better to know if it's if it's free and, and you know you you're not really losing anything by having a email that happens to trigger you every time someone opens it and it's just titled something really spicy that an attacker or someone with a personal agenda would go to first. Yeah, there's actually a lot of good stuff. And uh, there's a book called The Smart Girl's Guide to Privacy. And I, I made both my kids read it when they turned 13. They started having access to to social media accounts and stuff like that. And it's um, it's a good general book just for you to have awareness of what's possible on the Internet, like how people can abuse you, how they can get information about you, you know, through the different accounts and services you use and, and how you can protect your own your own privacy. And um, and I think it would be neat to I've not really seen any good guides out there. Maybe there's something I've overlooked, but you know it's an idea that I've been throwing around is is uh, at least contributing to some kind of guide that's uh, you know like an opsec guide for for the average person. You know, how to protect yourself? How you know especially in certain scenarios, what tools are at your disposal? Especially free tools that are easy to access. You know that we just want people to be aware of. And, and know that that option's there. Yeah, I really want to talk to actually at some point uh, Eva, the cybersecurity director from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, because she deals with a lot of cases of cyber stalking and and kind of this exact scenario. Because I'm sh I'm sure she's probably heard of this as like one of the ways to monitor that sort of thing, and I'm sure she would have a lot of interesting things to say. I actually I've reached out to her, so maybe I could continue this uh, conversation with her because I I think she might have some really good resources for people who are in that sort of situation that need some tools to make sure that. Their accounts are locked down and they're doing everything they can to make it difficult for people to get into their accounts. Yeah, yeah, I bet she would. Yeah, I've, I've, I've read a lot of the stuff that she's written. So there are some other scenarios you mentioned that to a person that doesn't understand how the sort of web tracking works sound almost impossible, but are actually real ways that uh, a canary token could catch someone. And I wanted to go over tokenizing documents because we mentioned somebody accessing a file on a server. But actually being able to track that person after they take the document out of that environment and it's back in the wild and you don't know exactly who's going to be touching it after that, that's something that I think would be really interesting to people who aren't aware of how it works. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of our tokens just use different tricks that we've found to where when you open a PDF or when you open a Word document or, or you browse to a Windows directory, the way that this software works, and it's not really a bug, you know, this is just the normal way that these products work. These are features within the products that we're, we're leveraging here. We can have it reach out to a web server and touch a web server on a very specific URL that we embed in that document. And that's how you can have a Word doc that I could email to somebody. Maybe they steal my flash drive. You know, maybe they steal my credentials, download it from my Google Drive. Any place in the world that where they're connected to the internet, that's going to reach back out to that Canary token server and let you know that somebody's opened that document. So it's really nice because there's no extra software involved. We're just using the file formats and, and what they support you know, uh, within those uh, little portable bits of data. And, and it just works. And uh, you can change the content of the file. You can change the name of the file. It doesn't break the, the trap that's embedded within. 
So this file then becomes kind of like a tagged animal where once it goes out into the wild, everyone who comes into contact with it, suddenly you're getting information about who is accessing that, uh, basically the information that's left your server or left your Gmail account. So if one particular person is the only person who has access to that, you would know because it would only be a single IP address that was opening it. But if suddenly a chain of people were to access it, it would be much easier to track where that document had gone and who was accessing it, or if more than one person had access to it. Right. And, and the real power of the token here, occasionally we see somebody do this, but uh, they might generate a token, put it on 500 laptops, and then they get an alert and the realization hits them. Oh, I, I probably should have put 500 tokens on 500 laptops because <laughs> now I one don't know which laptops. one. Yeah. One of these 500 <laughs> is in trouble and I and I can't check them all individually. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's kind of the key philosophies behind it is you have this trap that only exists in one location. And so when you get an alert from it, and it depends on the Canary token, some of them give you a lot of detail. Some of them, it's not a whole lot of detail. But what makes it really valuable is you know somebody had access to that one unique flash drive or had access to your inbox because that token didn't exist anywhere else except for that one place. So this also extends to physical locations because you mentioned an example that I thought was incredibly ingenious where you could have a restricted area that has a QR code that basically looks like it's containing sensitive information that maybe even links to sensitive information, which hopefully isn't too sensitive, maybe just bait. But uh, in going to that link, you would be revealing that you had basically access to a restricted area. So you would be kind of uh, exposing that you'd gotten unauthorized access to that area and then either tried to go to that link or otherwise done something with uh, the information when you shouldn't have. So if you don't scan the link, there's still the possibility where if you have the URL or if you get the URL, uh, well, sorry, if you don't click on the link, there's still the possibility that even sharing it with another person without clicking it could still get you caught. So that really blew my mind when I started thinking about it, that you know, <laughs> someone taking a photo, scanning it with their phone, and then being like, hey, what's this URL? And passing that to another person in a chat could still tip off the person who wants to know who's been in that area. And then that person who was you know, shared on it is uh, you know, now <laughs> involved in uh, triggering an alert on that particular token. Can you explain to me how that works? Because that just seems wild that you know a, a photo someone takes on their cell phone could be shared with someone else. And then without even clicking on it, you know, it could be known that someone was sharing that data. Sure, yeah. So like in our case, what we use for that is we just use a QR code. And a QR code is just a, you know, it's a visual representation that can be, you know, with software converted back into data, you know, and, and, and there's a limit to the amount of data, but you can easily fit a URL in there. And, and that's what we do. You know, it's the same URL that we might use in a fake email where we uh, trick the attacker into clicking that link, much in the same way that attackers try to trick us with phishing emails into clicking links. We're doing the same thing back to them, except in this case, it's just embedded in that QR code. So most phone cameras, or if you're using like a special QR code scanner app or something like that, will, will prompt you say, hey, do you want to open this link? And getting somebody to do that, that's, again, where the social engineering comes in. Wherever you use that QR code, maybe you've got some text around it that says, you know, free candy if you scan or, or free credentials or, you know, here, here's the password to the server. Whatever you think might get an attacker to, to follow that link. And, and once they do, it, it works just like our normal web links where that attacker's uh, web browser on their phone is going to reach out to the Canary token server and we get some data from it when it does because 
web browsers, that's just how they work. If you want a website to look right on a phone, you want that phone to say, hey, I'm a phone. And in a lot of cases that, like, like on my Android phone, it'll specifically tell you, hey, I'm a Samsung Galaxy Note 8. Like very specifically, and I'm running this version of Android and I'm using the Chrome web browser. And then the website knows, okay, uh, this is the version of the website I'm going to give you. And, uh, and, and we're just using that to identify these devices. And, and that can be useful information, you know, because if you take that QR code, you put it somewhere, all of a sudden you get an alert that, you know, somebody with a Samsung Note 8, you know, is, is in a secure area that they, sh you know, probably shouldn't be in because people that are authorized to be in that area know not to scan the QR code because it's a trap. You go and you inspect that area, you see somebody handing a Samsung Galaxy Note 8, and they're, they're going to look pretty guilty. That's pretty funny. So you can even trace the individual device uh, just by analyzing what happens. Now, you also sent me a, a QR code, which I've now accessed. <laughs> and I'm curious, I've attempted to spoof my user agent to make it look like I'm running a Nokia device. I'm curious if uh, you're able to figure out uh, what exactly I'm running. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, while we were chatting, I, I slipped that QR code to you, hoping you would, you would do something with it. And yeah, you look like, uh, first of all, you look like you're coming from Kirkland, Washington, which I think is Eastern Washington, if my geography is correct. That is around the geographic area. Yes. Yes. So I chose, I chose not to disrupt our chat to throw up a VPN to throw off your trail. Um, but yes, I'm, I'll say that's the general regional area. Yeah. And so, so your user agent says, uh, Nokia 5250 Symbian OS 9.4. That's uh, me only yeah. it's not though. I'm on a MacBook pro, but right, as you right. can see there, I, I guess there's a little bit of wiggle room if you're running, you know, browser extensions. But it does say Safari. Yep. It does say Apple WebKit and it does say Safari, which does not fit a Nokia at all, I wouldn't think. Exactly. But a lot of that stuff gets, user agents are terrible because you have to abuse them to get the web page to look right. You know, so there's a lot of stuff that gets thrown in those user agents that's not accurate to that device. And it's just done for, you know, because the web is, is just a complete mess. And standards don't mean anything, so nobody follows them. That's pretty amazing. So even though I was running a user agent to try to hide, you were able to see that you know it. My initial user agent probably wasn't truthful, just based on all the other software that was running. So that's pretty cool. And it, it again for a normal person who just wants to be able to distinguish whether someone's using a, a very cursory level of deception. It's, uh, I think, a pretty good way of being able to do that. Now, I'm also going to try to scan it on my phone. And you and I discussed that sometimes not even clicking on this, you can actually have a detection happen. So I'm curious to see if I might be able to trigger a detection just holding up on an Android phone. So I, now it's popped up a little, it's popped up a little link for me to follow, but I'm curious if there was any other detection. Nope, nope, nothing else came in. Okay, so we can confirm that just scanning this on an Android device isn't enough to trigger it. But then now you should have a good detection. Yep. And does it uh, is it leaking my location on that one as well? <laughs> not your real one. Not, not unless you somehow teleported over to uh, Eastern Europe. No, my real location. Okay, so I guess it didn't work. Well, now you know where I really am. That's too bad. <laughs> Travnik. <laughs> okay, well, that's fun. So, but I'm sure that if you were to look at that, you would be able to see all sorts of other things, like maybe that my uh, keyboard is in English or my time zone is in a certain area that would you lead you to the conclusion that that probably wasn't entirely truthful. Right, right. Pixel 4 XL? Yep, 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 yep. I already cracked it. 
first week. So this information, you know, just um, you know, the the real point here is that I know that you somehow got access to my top secret flash drive, which is what I've named this QR code. You know, and uh, presumably I've I've somehow attached it to that flash drive. I've taped it onto it or something like that. Or there's a keychain with this QR code on it. So the fact that we can get this data about your device, about what scanned it, is kind of secondary. It's like a bonus. You know, it's not the main thing we're after. The main thing we're after is, you know, if 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 this was only in my email inbox, I know I need to change my password right now because somebody else has somehow logged in. Or I need to look at what other apps I've given access to my inbox and I need to revoke some of those permissions. That makes sense because for businesses that, I mean, obviously I work for a company in Veronis that provides the ability to do this for like every single file and like every file that's sensitive, a honeypot. But a lot of smaller organizations, like you mentioned, like lawyers and other people that don't have the kind of IT support to implement this sort of thing. And they don't have the kind of budget to actually be able to really dive into these tools and use them across a large organization. They still have lots of files and they still deal with tons of sensitive stuff, even if they can't afford to protect it in the way that you can with, you know, plenty of money and a good budget. So it's really key that I think these sorts of smaller businesses and people who might have a lot of sensitive stuff, but not have any way to monitor access to it because maybe it's shared or maybe, you know, there's an easy way for it to be exfiltrated. Like it at least gives some way to get a well canary in the coal mine when someone's you know, beginning to exfiltrate data or log into stuff that they shouldn't be or start to touch stuff that everyone knows is a trap. So it means that someone from the outside is accessing it. Yeah, something you mentioned earlier is kind of interesting about how learning how data travels. You know, so one thing inevitably that will happen if you play with canary tokens a lot is eventually you'll have AV or or maybe even upload it to a, a virus scanner just to see what happens. And uh, if you want to make a list of all the IP addresses, you know, all the systems that uh, an AV company or maybe Microsoft uses to investigate malware and, and to test it out and stuff like that, you know, they've got these sandboxes where they throw them into actual Windows systems and stuff like that to, to see what happens when they run it. The nice thing about having a Canary token is you'll get a list of those. They'll all come back to you every single time this is automatically opened in this malware analysis sandbox, uh, you'll get a ping back. It's not something like you don't want to do it on purpose unless you want a whole bunch of alerts back, you know, but but it, it's it's interesting because you kind of, you see this pattern, like you start to understand, you know, okay, here's how the analysis process works behind the scenes. You know, first it, it goes to these first couple of servers. Now it looks like some actual researchers downloaded it and, and is now playing with that file. You know, you, you kind of see these patterns come back and you can watch the, the the data travel from the alerts that come in every single time that file is open. And same thing, like you mentioned with the QR code, like if somebody took a photo of it, but didn't follow the link and then sent that photo to someone else, there's entirely the possibility that that person is using some software that says, hey, there's a link here. Do you want to follow it? And they do follow it. So back when I used to pen test, uh, I remember I had one situation where we were doing phishing, you know, as part of a, a pen testing engagement. And um, we just had this super simple like, like fish that I don't think anybody would fall for now, but it was like passwordhealth.com and like put in your password. We'll tell you how strong your password is. Like I, I, I hope nobody <laughs> fall, fall for that these days. 
Uh, but back then, so even back then they didn't. So the person that got the email, one of the people that we sent it to, forwarded it to everyone in the whole company. And this was a defense contractor that basically had like people for hire in, you know, wartime engagement, you know, th those kinds of areas, you know, so, so one of those kinds of companies. And eventually after being forwarded like nine times, and the reason I know this is I got in the person's inbox because they actually went to the website and put in the password, their own real password twice after that email was forwarded nine times with the original link still in there still clickable a native iraqi that you know didn't have great command of english got that you know didn't understand don't don't click this you know and oh password health you know this mu must be a compliance thing like i gotta test out my password so they did and uh yeah, and they didn't sanitize it before forwarding it, but it was just a, a comedy of errors where, you know, it, like for it to be forwarded that many times and then somebody actually falls, finally falls for it. It was just fascinating to me. Wow. So someone finally interpreted it as an order and actually did it. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty incredible. Yeah. And it was just a, it was a cultural issue. It was like, okay, yeah, this is something I have to do. You know, just this is corporate compliance. <laughs> That's amazing. And also a little scary just because, you know, you, you generally don't have that kind of visibility on something that's that dangerous. You might get an after action report, but being able to actually show like this is where it traveled and these are the people, you know, that'll forward anything like that's that presents a real danger to those organizations that they probably wouldn't have visibility for, especially if they're smaller and they're not, you know, a giant defense contractor. And that's the power of a trap that, you know, where the trap travels easily like that. You know, so in these canary tokens can be links, they can be files, uh, all sorts of different formats that, that are portable and, and travel. So I've also really been interested in some of the use cases where, you, you know, you'll start up a company computer and it will check in with its IP address. And I've used, for example, the refer to uh, referred by, I think it is URL parameter to pass information about a computer. So you can do things like have a script that is I use to inject with USB rubber ducky that calls back to a tracking server and just reports information about its environment, like which wireless networks are nearby uh, or other things that could bust a VPN. So even if they're using a VPN and reporting false information, maybe even falsifying things like their user agent, you would still be able to uh, you know, determine what their physical location was. The possibilities are really crazy, but can you tell me about some of the other applications that you've found for just you know, having canary tokens on a physical system or checking in on a system that maybe has parts that should be accessed or parts that uh, have been decommissioned? Yeah, yeah. So, so we've actually got a token type that's a Excel document and Word doc document with macros. And so a, a macro is nothing more than a script. So we can do whatever we want with that script. So just like your your situation where you're using the, the refer to field or you, know, you can use the user agent to smuggle whatever data you want out, that macro of somebody not only opens the file, but enables the macro, which again, you're using uh, social engineering techniques to, to convince them that that's a good idea. We can then pull information off that local system and, and smuggle it out. But yeah, yeah, we get all kinds of interesting stories back uh, from people that have used Canary Tokens. Like I mentioned, over 100,000 people use that that public service. And, you know, sometimes we get the wink and a nod, like, like hey, this technology is really cool. You know, it uh, I had a long weekend, but uh, just wanted to let you know it worked. And sometimes we actually get some details. And one case where we got uh, some details, and, and I think this was even shared in the public domain, you know, somebody said that they had just a Word document macro uh, on the root of a, uh, I think it was a Windows server. So C colon backslash, you know, I, I don't know what they 
named the file, but they had a token there. And you know, the server lived out its life. They decommissioned it, deleted all the data, server's gone. I think they had completely forgotten that they put that token on there. And we hear this all the time. It's like, I completely forgot I created that token three years ago and I just got an alert from it. So a month after they decommission the server, delete all the data, delete all the backups, they get something like six pings from Russia. <laughs> from Which is the data worst. that was on the server, but the server is no more. So yeah, how that happened? <laughs> wow. Well, it's just the thought that for one, you know, if I'm some guy stealing a server, that once I get that data, some of it could actually be active or, or actually be used to, to catch me. That's pretty incredible. But then thinking that also your decommissioned server is showing up in another country and the data that was supposed to be erased is suddenly being accessed, that is pretty terrifying and probably would be impossible to identify if you hadn't set something up that was that persistence to survive with the data that the uh, person is trying to access. They, they would have never known otherwise. Yeah. And... What really got me about that is, is I'm really organized with stuff. So as part of decommissioning server, if it were me, I probably would have killed that canary token. I probably would have said, ah, I don't need this anymore. You know, uh, unless like them, I had completely forgotten that I had put it there in the first place. But after hearing the story, I was like, oh man, like, like I would have failed that because uh, I, I probably would have cleaned up and, and gotten rid of that canary token and I would have never known. If I deleted, you know, or, or decommissioned that canary token along with the server. Every business that's ever had to get rid of information is wishing that they'd watermarked it essentially with a canary token that would call back to them if someone had recovered the data or was able to reconstruct something that was supposed to have been, you know, destroyed. Yeah, think of the music industry where you're always hearing about albums being leased, uh, leaked or Hollywood movies, uh, scripts are getting leaked. There's absolutely no reason you couldn't token all that stuff. It's pretty incredible that we're at the point that a single file is all it takes to be able to reveal someone who's gone back through information that's supposed to have been destroyed or information that they shouldn't have been disseminating and are probably making a profit off of maybe. Even if that doesn't tell you who did it or how, you know, and, and the power of knowing, yeah, at least with uh, PR or legal, you can get out in front of it, you know, before it becomes uh, a big issue. You know, so like in the music case, you know, you can get ahead of it and maybe get the official release out before they put it up on whatever website they're, they're going to share it on. Right. The first step in all of this is just knowing that the data has been accessed. As you mentioned, everything else is kind of secondary. And it's, it's great to be able to attribute someone or to be able to, you know, understand the scope but fundamentally, just knowing that it's been accessed is the best, you know, the best case scenario for having data being breached. Because most people, you know, if they don't have this sort of stuff in place, they find out years later when, you know, their customer's information ends up on a darknet website and someone starts reporting on it. Yeah, and, and that's that's still a common narrative today. You know, I think uh, the Verizon DBIR from last year, um, you know, uh, good friends with the the authors of that and a lot of the researchers that comb through that data and, and put together that wonderful report every year. And one of the things that came out of that is uh, I, I think POS-related breaches were just a hair's breadth away from 100% that were notified by a third party. So basically, fraudulent activity is the only reason we know that there was a breach there. And it, it's just you know, that narrative has just persisted for decades now. And they really need some way of knowing when that data is walking off. Well, yeah, especially for small business owners or individuals who don't have an IT department to monitor those sorts of things. Usually the only tools are, you know, maybe Gmail alerting you when there's a suspicious login or someone who is in an IP address that you've never logged in from before. Can you explain how someone might embed 
a canary token and something like an email or some other common service they use to be able to detect this? Like what's the actual process of, of using one or setting one up? Sure. So the, the commercial version, we actually have a method of just inserting it if you use Office 365 into 100 or 1,000 mailboxes all at once. And what we've done is we've just pre-written the email, we've made it look attractive to an attacker, and we've we've already inserted some tokens in there. But you could totally just build your own as well. And the uh, the trick is is putting it somewhere where it's not going to get looked at accidentally, you know. But an attacker would find it, you know. So attackers don't browse through things; they search through things. You know, so if a folder's hidden, you know, if, if uh, you know an email is tucked away somewhere, that's actually the most likely place an attacker is going to look, and the least likely place that your normal employee or, or just a normal person is going to look. So there's a bunch of things you can do. I mentioned the web links. Most email is HTML based. Very easy to, to uh, just paste a link in somewhere or you know attach it to a few words in, in the email. You could also embed an image in that email. Uh, what you do is you upload an image to your Canary Token server or to canarytokens.org. And every time that image is loaded from our server or from your Canary Token server, we send you an alert. You know, so it's it, you could embed that in an HTML email, and every time somebody views that email and enables images so that the images load, you get an alert. You could also have attachments on there. So the Word docs, the PDFs, you know, the macro-enabled stuff we talked about, any of that stuff can be attached to an email. And there's no reason you couldn't do all of the above. You, you could have a QR code in there. You could have a link. You could have an image load. And, and that's really where the value of these tokens come in is once you start doing that, and with the commercial version, we have an API, and you can just automate all this stuff so you're not manually putting all this stuff together. You just throw a million of them out there. And, you know, they don't all have to work. They don't all have to be 100% foolproof, guaranteed to catch the attacker when you've got enough out there that at least, you know, 1% will. And 1% is enough for you to know what's going on, you know, and do something about it. Well, an example that I really loved because it was something I never would have thought of also was a pretty substantial amount of the population has been laid off or is looking for new work. And you mentioned that job seekers can use this sort of thing to basically put a token on their resume and be able to determine whether people are actually opening the email, how many times their resume is being read, like how many times maybe the uh, recruiter has read that uh, resume if they've opened it multiple times. Like that seems like an amazing way for people who otherwise have no visibility into that process to actually see a little bit about what's really happening on the other side and whether you know they, they need to work on certain parts of their resume or if they're just not maybe getting all the way through the review process. We don't market it like that, but it has come to our attention that some people use it that way, yes. I just think it's amazing that people can kind of design their own interaction with this sort of tool where, you know, for free, you can really keep track of where something's going in a way that used to only be the domain of tracking companies and, you know, advertisers who would do this on the behalf of, you know, companies with massive budgets. What I like about this is it kind of democratizes the efforts and people who want to be clever about, you know, managing their data now have access to some of the really the most powerful tools of, uh, you know, advertising and tracking that have been developed over the last couple of decades. Yeah, absolutely. And, and some of these ideas that we're seeing, like stuff that people are doing with these tokens, you know, are not these, you know, super uber hackers or anything like that. You know, they're just uh, typical people that said, you know, hey, heard about this on a podcast, went to play with it, had this idea to use it to token my resume, and, and it works really well. It's really cool. You know, so absolutely. It's uh, kind of enables some really 
cool hacky use cases for everyday ordinary people. All you have to do is have imagination enough to say, hey, what if I token this document? you know, that goes through this process. What would I learn, you know, once I release that into the wild? Interesting, interesting. And now I have an idea that sprung into my mind that I'm going to have to ask you about another time. Uh, I Well, or maybe I'll ask you now. So I know you guys do uh, DNS tokens. We do. We have DNS tokens. Uh, in fact, a lot of the, like the Word document token we've been talking about uh, has actually a DNS and a web token embedded within it. So one thing that I thought was really interesting was um, there was the ability to create a tracking device, sort of, that uh, is like basically a GPS tracker that connects to any open Wi-Fi networks like a McDonald's Wi-Fi or a Starbucks Wi-Fi that has a um, pop-up screen that requires you, you know, to basically like log in. And what it takes advantage of is the fact that well, basically DNS tunneling is, is the, the punchline to this. But it, it takes advantage of the fact that a lot of these hotspots will forward on DNS requests and they won't they will not forward on the response, but they they don't block the actual DNS request from going on. And you can piggyback some information onto that or at least try to you know add on another uh, pin on the pin board if you're just checking in on something. So I've been looking at working with the front and creating a, a kind of Wi-Fi tracker devices that use DNS tunneling in order to identify maybe where someone's going without access to like a cellular network or something a traditional GPS tracker might have. Do you think that DNS tunneling might be possible to trigger a canary token through a network like that with just like a little microcontroller that's joining and sending an automated DNS request? Yes, that should work. I have tested canaries, you know, because I travel well before lockdown and all that, um, did a lot of traveling. So I've been at several hotels with canaries with me. And, and the, the so our canary devices do everything over DNS. So they get firmware updates. They send out alerts. They get configuration updates entirely over DNS. And, and we do that so that, you know, in the corporate environment, you don't have to go through change control, you don't have to ask for a hole in the firewall to talk to our device. Yeah, you can just plug it into a network and it just works. So is it using like clever DNS steganography or, or just like kind of like packing inside the DNS in order to get it through otherwise like a network that might restrict that sort of communication? We're just using DNS text records. So, you know, if you're a commercial customer, you get your own dedicated Canary token server and Canary console, and it's actually authoritative DNS. And that's how that DNS request gets back. That's why it doesn't have to talk directly to us for that to work. And it's just how DNS works. You know, when you do a request, that gets back to the authoritative domain just through the system of DNS servers. You know, so we're just using the way that DNS works for that to happen. And most of those networks that have captive portals where they forward you to a website, you've got to authenticate, DNS works just fine on them. That DNS will get back. You know, what they're blocking you from doing is using your web browser and getting out, but they don't really care about DNS. In fact, I think for that whole captive portal piece to work, they need functional DNS. So I'm not sure that they even could block that. That is amazing. And I'm going to talk to my friend Stefan, who specializes in working with um, ESP8266 and ESP32 microcontrollers to see if we can make an automated beacon that can go through uh, those portals, because that I think would be really exciting and cool. Yeah, and, and you can use canarytokens.org. You, you could probably use that in your testing. And like I mentioned, that case with the Word and the Excel macro documents, we have all that information they grab, the internal IP address, the username, the, the host name, all that stuff we can get out over DNS. You know, if there's no, you know, way to get to a web server out from that network, it'll still get out over DNS. So absolutely, you can smuggle all that data out over DNS. 
Man, okay, that's pretty exciting to know. And I'm a little disturbed by that, but I'm also happy that it works because- <laughs> It sounds like, like a neat project though. Yeah, right? Yeah, I've, I've been meaning to try it for a while. So it's, it's gonna be interesting to see what information you can actually exfiltrate with DNS because it sounds like you can actually do quite a lot. Yeah, I forget the actual data limit. You know, it's in hundreds of bytes, you know, and anything longer than that, you end up sending more than one DNS request. You know, you just end up chunking it up and putting it back together later. And like on the commercial devices, uh, everything's encrypted between the canaries and the, and the cloud. So we actually, all that stuff going over DNS because DNS is a, a clear text protocol for the most part still. Though we're, we're starting to see that change. You know, it, it's just, uh, it's in hex and it's, it, you know, uh, encrypted. And we, we decrypt it with the uh, on the other end because we share public private keys uh, between the canary and the cloud. But yeah, with the tokens, you know, it's also, um, yeah, there's some data you can smuggle out that way. Because I was going to say, if I was someone who wanted to build a tracker in that way, if I had something that would just connect to any open Wi-Fi network and then ping, uh, you know, a DNS server with maybe the MAC address of the network I was connected to, Google has a map of where all these networks are because when they were doing their Google Street View, they were also collecting MAC addresses and all the, that information so they could do more accurate geolocation for phones. So that inf and wiggle Wi-Fi also. Yeah, it's uh, I haven't tried it on on like public Wi-Fi, like, uh, you know, coffee shop Wi-Fi, that that kind of thing. But I, I do know uh, it gets out just fine on hotel networks, which a lot of them use the same products and services. You know, there, there's companies out there that just do captive portals. Well, I know how I'm going to spend my weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, let me know if you have any questions or anything. I, I'd love to help you test that. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I think we're coming up on towards the end. We've covered a lot, but is there anything else you would want people who, especially people that are just getting interested in security to know about security token, uh, canary token, sorry, as a tool and maybe a way that they might get started using it in their everyday life. They're really building blocks, you know, and there's so many cool things that you can build off this. And and we've seen, and, and that's really kind of what we're after with a lot of our products here is, you know, here here's some base building blocks, go build something cool. And that's like we talked about, like the web and the DNS tokens, we consider those kind of the the token primitives that if you look at most of our other tokens, uh, they're, they're built from. And there's more places tokens can be built, you know, so I'd urge people to really just think about the use case first. Like, sure, go check out the tokens, play with them so you understand uh, what they are, what they can do, what scenarios you can use them in. So that that's why we make it easy to to grab them, to download them, to play with them. But then just think of the use case. Like, I would love to know when this leaves the organization or when somebody picks this up or, or touches this. At that point, you know, once you have those two things, you've got the need and, and some knowledge of what you can do with, with tokens and with that kind of concept. Then you start to find all the cool stuff that you can put together. So I have a personal story for how I've used a Canary token. Back when I lived in Los Angeles, I really liked exploring storm drain tunnels because they're some of the most incredible graffiti you've ever seen. And I know it's a little weird. It's not sores. They're, they're different, just storm drain tunnels. But there's a really vibrant community of uh, street artists who go down there and paint really incredible work. And I decided one day to, um, I love pranks. So I took a USB thumb drive and I put on it a PDF file, which was tokenized. I wanted to see who would actually, you know, take a, a PDF file from a, a storm drain USB stick and actually run it on their computer. And I went into really deep in the storm drain where a lot of people paint. And I put a little LED with a battery underneath it, just lighting it up in the darkness and then just painted a big arrow towards it and then just for the brave. And I stuck it there. 
Ah, that's great. And a, a week later, and so on the- That's some Banksy level stuff there. Yeah, so a week later, it was gone. But on PDF, there was a uh, the information for a $25 Amazon gift card I had left over that I just wasn't using. I was like, this is the perfect opportunity. But whoever took it has not worked up the courage <laughs> to open it yet, as far as I've been able to tell. Really? Yeah, yeah. But either that or they're a master hacker and they opened it on an air-gapped offline computer and just reaped the benefit of the, of the gift card. Which, you know, if you did it, you earned it. All I wanted to know was who you are. I just wanted to know I wasn't alone down there. So either there's a raccoon making a nest out of my secret uh, USB, but I put it pretty high up there. So I'm pretty confident someone's just working up the courage to open the file. But uh, yeah, so there's all sorts of interesting creative things you can do with Canary Token. I wish the finale of that story could have been that, you know, I managed to find out who it was, but unfortunately someone took it, but they haven't, they haven't opened it yet, but at least I know. So for anyone else inspired to do something like that, you know, the, the real trick with canary tokens, it, don't treat them as expensive or fragile or anything, you know, do 10 flash drives and one with a PDF, one with a Word document, like throw a bunch out there. Yeah. And same thing, like when we do fishing exercises, when we do drive drops, we would never just do one drop. You know, those flash drives are cheap. You know, there's services you can get like a hundred of them for 30 bucks or something like that. You can even get them branded with whatever you want printed on them. But yeah, yeah. If if, if you really want a response for something like that, uh, don't depend on just one. Throw a whole bunch out there. That's a good idea because I've been going to the RSA conference every year for the last three years and picking every single USB thumb drive from the press room because I care about their safety. Those poor people will just take it and plug it in like it's nothing. They didn't even read the email that says not to do that. I don't even know why they let them pass out USB thumb drives, but I make sure to scoop them all up. Uh, so I have, you know, like 60 in my drawer now ready to go if I ever needed to do something like that, which I almost definitely will. Yeah, that, that's, that's a handy use for those. Yeah, as a as an art project, I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, and it turns out that a lot of people were very provoked by the For the Brave sentiment. I tweeted about it, and that was, I think, one of the most interactions I got for any tweet I'd sent that entire year. So it turns out just like putting out what almost definitely looks like malware with just a challenging statement is enough to provoke most people into doing it. Who knew? Were, were they angry about it? Like, like what, was, what was the response? They wanted to know what was on the drive more than anything. I didn't have the heart to tell them that it was like, you know, a $25 gift card and some tracking software. It just, the mystery really seemed to motivate people to want to take the risk. It's like, wow, I think I found like a way to get people to disinfect themselves just by like, you know, just needing to know what this is. Yeah. So, so I actually, our second year, I, I'm one of the organizers for B-Sides Knoxville. We've done actually uh, electronic badges every year because one of our organizers is, is a hardware designer. Uh, that's that's actually all he does and we just didn't have time to do it the second year you know we were getting close to the conference we still didn't have anything for badges so i bought up a ton of floppy disks uh, and floppy disks have those those two little holes at the top that you use for for read write and you know with, with the lobster claw style uh, lanyard clips it, it was perfect like it would just hang perfect and so i i found some really old printable floppy labels and i found yeah it was something like 350 400 floppies printed a bunch of labels stuck them on them and i had this idea to put some kind of data on there to have some kind of like treasure hunt in the data on the floppy they're they're all brand new floppies you know so they should have all worked and that was just one of the ideas that that didn't make production had to fall by the wayside they looked great they presented great and, and i felt so bad because 
everybody was convinced there had to be something on those floppies and people are buying floppy like they're scouring the internet for usb connected floppy drives and like their uh, twitter threads going where people are like like have you been able to read what's on the floppy and and i just didn't have the heart to tell everybody that yeah sorry that yeah there's i didn't have time i didn't get to that part like the conference was more important than getting something cool on that floppy you know yeah, getting up the courage to go into the storm drain and do that was more important for me than getting a big payoff. But now I've, I've got a lot of people telling me I should have been more aggressive with the detection and make it so as soon as they plug it in, it goes off. Yeah, so you, you should have put a uh, Windows folder token on there. So it's a desktop. Wait, that's possible? Yeah, yeah, it's a desktop.ini. And so it's not going to work if somebody plugs it into a Mac or, or a Linux system because they don't care about desktop.ini. But Windows uses the desktop.ini file to tell it, hey, view this in thumbnail view or view this in detail view or, you know, use this uh, special icon or something like that. And we actually leverage one of those features to reach out to the Canary token server. You know, you can actually tell it, um, hey, there's a resource in this desktop.ini that's on this remote server. And so when somebody views that on a Windows system, you know, just plugs, plugs it in, opens up Windows Explorer, that's going to trigger an alert. Wow. So it wasn't that I wasn't aggressive enough. I was using the wrong token. Well, no, you weren't using the wrong token. You weren't using enough tokens. I, I bet that's a common mistake. Layers, man, layers. So then I would have had like an 80% chance of detecting someone plugging it in because most people are Windows users and, you know, that works against Windows computers. So you token viewing the directory. Uh, you token the PDF. You have a link inside the PDF that's a token. You have a QR code inside the PDF that's a token. Like you can layer these things. You just, you know, tokenception with it, you know, just go su super deep. <laughs> that has given me a ton of ideas. And I think a good way of following up on them is maybe doing a live stream of creating a document or a couple documents that tokenize and maybe showing off exactly what it looks like on the security. Uh, well, we're calling it hacking with friends, but it's on the security forward channel uh, on YouTube. Would you be up for something like that? We should totally do it. Cool. Uh, crowd could, uh, being a live stream, the crowd could participate. You know, we could uh, look for those bold individuals that will click links and scan QR codes. That sounds amazing. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Cool, cool, cool. Well, all right, I'm going to cut it off for today because otherwise we'll talk all day, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Thank you so much, Adrian, for joining. And I hope we can talk again about Canary Tokens and also just all the great stuff you're doing. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's been a lot of fun. I'm glad you asked me to do this. Of course, of course. And if people wanted to keep up with uh, all the great research going on at Canary and anything you're doing personally, how would they do that? Yeah, sure. So canary.tools is is the main domain. You know, we've got a blog there as well. We've got blog.thinks.com uh, where we share a lot of the new cool research that we do, the ideas that we come up with, new features coming out in both the free versions of stuff and the commercial versions. And uh, we, we have a GitHub as well, where I put together some of the scripts that I, you know, we use to deploy these Canary tokens and to, to do cool stuff with them. So if you go to GitHub and look for Thinkst, like I mentioned before, Open Canary is there as well. So yeah, we, we've got all kinds of free resources that people can play with regardless of whether they're their customers or not. Awesome. Oh, I had one last question. Can you run the Open Canary on a Raspberry Pi? I don't know if I'd read that somewhere. It, you can install it anywhere that you can install Linux. If, if you can run Linux, you can run Open Canary. Cool. Well, we might maybe do that as a null byte episode because that actually sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it's pretty cool. Cool. All right. Well, 
Awesome. Thank you guys so much for joining us on another episode of the Security Tools Podcast. If you like this one, make sure to check out our other episodes and our live streams on Tuesday and Friday. And if you want to see a replay of this, you can always go to the Security Forward YouTube channel where we have replays of this and our other content. Also, if you want to support us, go ahead and check out the Verona Cyber Attack Workshop. And again, thank you to Verona's for sponsoring this podcast and making all of this possible. We'll see you guys next time.